Welcome to the Football by Football Podcast. Let's do it. Well, hello, hello. Here we are again. This is Matt Chatham coming at you from the Real Thing Patriots Podcast. Happy week. Hope everyone had a great uh, holiday, Christmas, if that's your thing. It's certainly mine. Uh, if not, just a little time off the family, whatever it is you're celebrating. Got a big week here of football with plenty to look back upon and uh, plenty to look ahead to as the Patriots finish out this season. Week 17 is now upon us. Jets on the schedule and the playoffs and New Year's and all that other good stuff sits just beyond it. So let's go ahead and dive into this. You, you know, as, as if you're a Patriots fan out there, you listen to the show, you probably are. Uh, you know how things have been here the last month or so. It's sort of week after week having to bat away uh, some controversy, non-troversy, whatever you want to call them, where, uh, you know, clearly the Patriots won because of some illicit thing. Something aided them in their victory. It's illegitimate. It's the uh, it's the act of asterisking uh, or asterisks uh, of the Patriots' victories. It used to be they'd just go back and tell us the ones that we have and those trophies that I swear are there and the rings I swear I have that the, those aren't worth anything anymore because they're, they've got asterisks now. That's There's a, there's a check mark next to those. That's what we've been told and that's what we're supposed to believe. But uh, now the process has gone to sort of a week-by-week basis. We're trying to delegitimize entire games because of one overemphasized play that uh, is at the very least questionable, in some instances not questionable at all. But it benefited the team that's so easy to hate. So here we are. Unfortunately, this is however many weeks it is in a row that we have to go back over one of these things, and we'll do it when we get to it, when it makes sense. But uh, let's first just sort of plow through this Bills game. It was a fun uh, fun coach's copy to go through because it was really sort of a tale of two halves. And I, I enjoy that from just a pure football sense of things. Uh, you know, it wasn't wire-to-wire offense. It wasn't wire-to-wire defense. There were moments where either side relented, and there were moments where, you know, the Pats really had to step up or they were in trouble, and they did. Uh, there were moments, there were drives where the defense wasn't great, and there was a lot more more so than, obviously, when you put up the final number that they did, uh, where the, the defense was exceptional. So it's the timing of things, and I think that's the part that they hit out of the park this weekend. So let's dive directly into this Bills game. So uh, this is probably your your big glaring negative of the game, other than the interception later, but uh, the Pats started uh, you know, three and out, start the game off. So, the Bills deferred. They were going to get the ball in the second half. Pats start with the football, which doesn't often happen. But in this instance, they started it off. Actually had a pat positive run to get things going. Uh, but then they tried an outside run later. And, uh, excuse me, on second down, and nothing went with it. Uh, nothing came of it, excuse me. So the next thing was sort of a curious call. And, uh, you know, it's I like the aggressiveness. The execution was gone. And what it was is... I call them a bow route. Uh, it's a seam route, but that sort of widens and then comes back, right? You know, sort of like the angle that a that a bow and a bow and arrow kind of takes. Uh, I think that's important uh, because, it, well, excuse me, not not important, but what's unique here is that that was to to Jacob Hollister to the uh, to the tight end, which is very unusual. That uh, they had one pass attempt on the day to start things off, and it goes to your third tight end in the slot, essentially. So that was a little weird, and it wasn't a great ball by Tom. Um, you know, I, I I don't know 
from where I'm sitting here if, if there was something wrong with the route or whatever. But it did look like he ran a vacancy. Uh, but the the throw was a little out in front of him, a little too close to the free safety for, for my taste. So, you know, it wasn't – I don't even, I believe Hollister didn't even get a hand on the ball. So, you know, it was the throw was a little off. And, and had he been able to get a hand on there, he's probably getting killed. Uh, so, you know, it was just a, a missed opportunity there on, on the first shot of the day. Decently uh, designed play and also a little bit of a head-scratcher that that's your first target of the day. But, hey – keep them on their toes i guess so that's how things started uh, a really uh inauspicious start there for the patriots but then they flipped to the defensive side of the ball and one this this really sort of shocked me i made a quick note of this when uh you know sitting at the game there and what you know what personnel group they got to come out first defensively it was a little interesting that Trevor, that riley uh, uh the the linebacker was made inactive in pregame and i'm kind of thinking in my head i'm, I'm talking to some of the other the patriots beat writers are there in the stands yeah, whoa, who's who are the outside linebackers? Who are the linebackers? They where's the depth? I mean, who's going to play what? And I think that was la- answered a little bit later that Marquis Flowers had a much bigger defensive role than we're used to having him see seeing him have, and he did really well. Uh, we'll get to that in more detail later. But the very first snap of the game defensively for the Patriots, uh, they had. 21 personnel across for them, so you know two backs. So it's LaShawn McCoy, the stud back there in the backfield, and you got two backs in the backfield, a tight end, and two wide receivers. So a real basic pro grouping. Um, and the Patriots came out with an eight-man box, and it was goal line. Uh, it was goal line-looking personnel anyway. You had four down linemen and outside linebackers outside of both of those. So six men on, so it's like a six-two essentially. Um, you usually only see that you know in short yardage or goal line situations, but they came out with that in the very first snap of the. Game, which is sort of a message about you ain't running it today. Now we know that there are other points in the game where some yard run yards were given up, but it was it was an interesting first message that you're going to go 21, which is usually not an overstep, you know, answer defensively. You don't usually, you know, go with your biggest group against 21 personnel, but they did. So that was a little bit interesting. Stop them right off the bat, uh, but on second down they got out of that, and then they and then the, they got a crack toss against them. Got a good chunk of yards, makes it third and short. Um, you know, one of this is one of the points I wanted to make because this happened early in the game. And I thought they improved on it a lot later. Um, and again, Marquise Flowers is playing n- number fifty nine. You need to know that guy now. He was the trader earlier in the season. He's really had a nice year for this team. Great on special teams, and has stepped up his role considerably on the defensive side of the ball. But this was one of this, those plays—a crack toss, sort of out. Crack toss, so I should tell you what that means. So uh, it's a toss play, obviously. So the quarterback's reversing out and tossing it to the back, um, and she's just sort of racing to the edge. But the crack portion is some sort of either wide receiver element or tight end on the play in front of me, but something from the outside cracks down on whoever your edge player is, right? So for the Patriots, that's either their outside linebackers or whoever the defensive end is. So what happens on a crack toss play is usually it's called force replace, so a replacing force. So you get cracked. Um, the, the guy who's getting cracked is supposed to see the crack come and wants to play out into it, press it, set the edge still. You don't want to concede the edge just because you're being cracked. But there's supposed to be a player that comes off the crack. The guy that, well, usually it's the guy that had the cracker, the crack blocker in coverage, right? And that's often a safety. So the safety can kind of replace. So you have someone that comes in and fills in the spot you otherwise would have been had you not been cracked. So they didn't play that well, and they went backdoor, and what backdoor means is so safe. You're, you're visualizing here, you're playing defense. You're in the NFL, folks. Congratulations. You're, you're playing defense, you're playing linebacker, you're on the second level, and it's tossed to the defense's right. Now, the offense is going to their left, and you're running, 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 and a blocker comes out to get you. What backdoor means? Backdoor means you go to the left behind the block. 
over the top of the block is the phrase they use to continue to go to the right of a block when it's the play's going right, if that makes any sense. So when you, they really tell you, and the, re, the reason I bring this up is because they had the sort of unfortunate situation, the thing you really don't want to do, where both guys chose backdoor. In other words, Landon Roberts and Marquise Flowers are both off the ball on the second level, and the ball's tossed to their right, and both guys went left uh, uh, versus the blockers that came out to them. That means two backdoor backdoor choices. If you both go back door, somebody's got to make the play because you're going to be short men over the top. You know, they, they usually want you to press it or at least get back over the top of the block and then let the cutback players make the cutback play. But if you go back door, a whole lot of people in the cutback and not a lot of people right to the point of attack. So that was a, a bit of a mucky one. And I think I, I sent a tweet right as I saw it. Like, Ooh, they, they still do not have crack toss figured quite out. But they did get it figured out in game because that, that, didn't, that wasn't a problem later on. So, uh, you know, just a sort of an error early on that they corrected in game, which is what you hope that they do. And uh, sort of an interesting little key coaching point there that I just remember from back in the day. So wanted to mention it to you in case you happen to see it pop up again in another game. Um, so... Next thing is, uh, you know, third down, they had actually gotten, you know, it was too much on second down. But third down, there's still fighting chance. And Trey Flowers has really been one of the best defensive players for the Patriots this season. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But we know he got banged up a little bit with the ribs. And he came back and was, you know, tough through, did did some positive things a week ago. But I think there were moments where I noticed, you know, he's not completely full speed. You know, it's it'll, it'll be great to see where he's at seven days from now. And we saw that this week. And I think this was one of those weeks where, oh, okay, closer to full Trey. Full Trey is scary. Full Trey has to start being accounted for in the way they slide the protections, who they put on who, those kinds of things, especially because the Patriots are willing to move him around a little bit. Um, this is probably the one negative, uh, best I recall from all my notes, of any, air quotes, negative Trey Flowers plays. And what Trey is really good at, and honestly a little bit similar to James Harrison, who obviously we're going to spend some time on here later in the show talking about. But it, Trey is, is powerful, but he's not tall. You know, he's not 6'4", he's not 6'5", or 6'6". You know, this isn't like a Jason Taylor body. It's not a Willie McGinnis body. It's He's squatted. He's a 6'1", or whatever the height happened to be, but he's heavy. 6'1", six, six, 260, 6'1", 265, whatever it is he weighs. But he's super strong, so he usually has better leverage than other guys. And, you know, he's squat, and he's just, you know, he's a bull. And he does a really good job with his hands. And one of his best moves uh, is bull rushing, you know, because he's going to be going against these 6'6 six, six tackles, these big monster guys. So uh, Trey actually did on this third and one uh, and understanding it's, it's Tyrod Taylor back there the dude can break and run uh, he's got real quick feet Trey did a really nice job of getting a press on the tackle but he got buried in him that's usually the phrase they use at least you know the, the D-line coaches or the outside linebacker coaches you can you can go speed to power you start to go up the field and power into the guy bull him sort of hat in hands you know, it's your helmet you know people don't like that but it's part of it you gotta you gotta sort of shock him and then extend and Trey did a really nice job tackles knocked back across the formation, past the quarterback, but then he gets buried in him. You know, so even though the guy's re- retreating, he's able to kind of catch himself and sort of swat Trey Poss to play. Tyrod gets out and breaks it. So it was kind of one of those moments where it's like, okay, Trey's power is back. But he can't get buried in that block. Uh, you know, give that up. That's a that's it's a bad play. It's probably one of the, the few negatives he had on the day. But on the flip side of that, wow, you can see the strength, you know, the extension, all that stuff that sometimes having sore ribs can 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 be affected but it, it he's he's turned the corner i think as far as that and we hear we see him in the, later in the game doing a lot of good stuff so uh, i think trey flowers is back and that means a lot for this defense 
Uh, let's move ahead here. Um, you know, one of the things that is sort of neat is, is worth noting here, and this isn't like a specific next play thing, but a Landon Roberts overall. So we talked about this a little bit. If you're following me on Twitter during the game, uh, I, I feel like I've tweeted about this a little bit since, but just the idea that they came pretty thin to the game. Uh, you know, there was, there weren't a lot of guys, you know, uh, David Harris, you know, my old teammate was, was there dressed and has had some positive weeks in, in, in recent weeks, but he, he, I best I recall, don't even think he took a rep. I think he was a real light day for, for David. So that means, you know, increased roles for other guys. So the oddity there is that Riley is inactive completely and Harris is going to take no reps. Holy crap. With Van Noy out, all of a sudden you're, you're a little thin. So it was a real light day for linebacker reps. Uh, basically your only three linebackers that are out there are Eric Lee, uh, the, he's your only outside linebacker, stand-up guy. And that, that kind of depends on how you uh, how you classify um, uh, Trey Flowers because Trey does play outside linebacker in the 3-4 for them, and he sometimes plays Sam, too, in the 4-3 stuff. So he, he's kind of a slash. But Roberts less so. Roberts was your only Sam who was up and playing. So, Ro- excuse me, not Roberts, but Lee. So you've got uh, Roberts on the second level. Next to him, Marquise Flowers in basically a full-time role for the day. And I think the Marquise Flowers decision, just, just guessing from the outside, but was in in regards to his foot speed. He's the quickest guy out there. He's much quicker than Atlanta Roberts as far as just straight running. Uh, I should say speed more than just quickness. Much faster than 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 is Eric Lee on the edge. But it did seem to think it did look that okay, he's going to be the guy to chase down pockets. You know, normally he doesn't do a whole lot of pass rushing, but he's going to be the guy to spy pockets and and make sure Tyrod Taylor doesn't break me in these plays. That was the that looked like the plan, and that looked like what happened. So uh, you know, good little fit there for him, and he made a lot of big plays. One of those obviously was on fourth down. We'll get to that here in a second. Um, a nice press and fold by uh, by Dietrich Wise. I think it's important to talk about him um, and Adam Butler because they've sort of been the young guy pair that's been very important uh, for the depth across that uh, that defensive line for the Patriots. Uh, press and fold really means. You know, you take it the you take the rush as far as you possibly can, but you don't get buried in the block like we mentioned on that other Trey Flowers play. And Dietrich Wise is the longest; he's the basketball player body of the group, the big power forward kind of feel. But he did a really nice job on his sack of pressing and then folding back in the pocket as far you know instead of getting up too far past him. So when the quarterback tries to go back downhill and run forward, he's able to retrace, they call it, go, you know, retrace your steps back down the pocket. So Dietrich Twice did a really nice job of that. I thought Adam Butler was active again today. Didn't have the, the flash plays that maybe Wise did, but between the two of them, they're getting a lot of good reps. And with Malcolm Brown coming back and playing at a high level again, and Ricky Jean-Francois, I think he's worth mentioning as well, number 94. I think he gets lost in the shuffle with all the good things that are going on up there defensively. Ricky had a, a limited set, uh, but I went back and, and sort of starred him several times. It's like, wow, okay. You know, played portion of a season for the Patriots, is out of the NFL for a week, comes back, plugging right back in, does well last week, does well again this week, and they need him to. I think that's very important, obviously, with Allen Branch down. So tip of the cap, him and Lawrence Guy were a nice little little spot in there. Malcolm Brown had one of his more dominating, dominating games of the season. So, um, you know, there were bad series overall collectively for the Patriots, but they really come to the run game. You know, the run game was, was held in check, considering how good they typically are in that area. The big, hard-to-tackle play, 
plays were actually in checkdowns. McCoy had the huge, huge play out in the flat where no one could catch him, and that took away a chunk of yards. But unfortunately for the Patriots, they they did hold that to a field goal later. But all right, moving on here, and then we just we just talked about the the wise sack where he sort of pressed and and folded in and made that sack. Uh, that ended up in a forced field goal. So, you know, if there's one thing you could say about the Patriots, there were a couple series where uh, the infield defense wasn't good enough. It's something that they'll be harped upon this week. Uh, but, you know, what was good was the, the forcing field goals. Uh, the worst series they had of the day defensively uh, was was really the one that did that. You know, they were fortunate to not have points scored on them, not because of the the Benjamin one. Again, we'll we'll spend more time on that later. But really, more for the Clay one. Yeah, Charles Clay was was open, was hit. And then he dropped it in the end zone as he got to the ground. Didn't survive the ground, that whole, that whole thing. But that's the one I think they were very fortunate on because, you know, that's, that's the correct interpretation of call of the rule. But, uh, you know, they, they just were beat on that play and then we're just fortunate the guy didn't take it to the ground so um you know that's that but that was probably their worst drive i would say of the day where you know they relented too much and then got beat other than by a technicality uh with the clay drop now the thing that came after again we'll talk about that more but it to me is clearly not a catch i think the league ruled correctly now moving on here um the offensive uh Sort of as an overriding theme here over the Patriots. Uh, this is I, I sometimes lump this in with offense because it's you know it's it's an offensive play, but it's in special teams. But I would say the kick return had a it didn't have a very good day, you know. And that's that's kind of we're kind of in this point of the season where you want to start to see the special teams groups flash. The coverage units have been exceptional, very very good, and we'll touch on a couple of those here later on in the show. But the return game in punt has had some positive plays in past week. I don't think they had many opportunities this last one, uh, mostly fair catches. But the kick return game did have their fair share and didn't do much with them. You know, too many unblocked guys to the return. So that's what the old phrase we used to say. is like you, you can get one and he can make the first guy miss, but if too many guys lose, uh, lose your block, it's just there's too much traffic and it can't get done, especially when they start directionally kicking. That means deep left, deep right. Uh, somehow, some way of sort of putting it in a corner so you can't spread the whole field and use all your agility out there that we know Deion Lewis has. So they're, when they're squeezing you and you're bringing it out and you get missed blocks, well, now you're in a small room and, and plays get made and it's it's hard to get something going. So we'll keep an eye on that. We'll talk about that a lot in the Jets game next week and see how they came out of it. Uh, but that's something that needs to get better. You know, just once, maybe twice a game, especially as you head in these playoffs, getting a, getting a field flip, just, you know, getting one, getting one up to midfield, getting something that is a real big assist to the offense. That's something you want to see. And we're, we're not in – what the what the NFL anticipated, uh, you know, coming of this this kickoff rule, the whole twenty five thing is the fair catch. Teams are willing to take the chance because if they bring it out and only get to twenty, it's five yards. I don't care, but it's the opportunity for many more. And you want to take that opportunity and get it out to the thirty five, get it out to the forty, get it out to midfield, even maybe break one occasionally. So that uh, well, that's something that uh, is teams are using as a part of what they do. Uh, you don't just see a bunch of, of of people taking knees, and that's good. But uh, the Patriots need to get better in that area. That's probably the one area in the in the midst of all the special teams that that's probably lagging the most. So, um, this was uh, uh, one of my 
I guess like a play that I circled that could have been a, an absolute killer, but I think there are moments when you absolutely have to tip your hat to, hat to the other team. Preston Brown, linebacker for the Bills, had a ton of tackles on the day. He was very active. It doesn't always mean he had a great day, but he was always around the ball. So that's, you know, sometimes those are downfield tackles. But he made a, a really great play that ruined what was set up to be a, a huge uh, screen to Deion Lewis. And that's in the same series. Is a play action to the back, a reverse fake, I believe it was the door set. And then they they pull off this little screen to Lewis, and it was so set up. I mean, you've got multiple linemen out in front. You've already got a defensive back on his back from, I believe, the tight end had made the block. And Lewis has got the ball in his hands, and if he just had a, a you know, a a cup full of air. He takes this thing for a huge play, probably easily a 20 or more kind of thing. But Preston Brown did a nice job of sort of hiding. He may have had the back man to man, which kind of helps with your read in these, in these screenplays, but he jumped it, man. He, he slipped by his, his little burst to, to sort of get through the line as they were trying to locate him. Uh, you know, maybe helps him hide a bit, uh, but he pops through, makes the play on Dion, and I'm sitting there going, Oh, and you just, you can pause it later, obviously with the, with the benefit of uh, of having you know having uh, replay and all that kind of stuff, you know the, the the ability of DVR to rewind things, but um, it was it was really nice to uh, to you know to see that the screen game seems to be taking steps even on those plays where one single guy has a breakdown. I, I think screen game playoffs is going to be a big part of this. We'll talk later about Mike Gillisley actually getting involved himself in the screen game uh, in a positive way. And we don't often think of the guy that way. But nice play there by Preston Brown. Blew up what was really set up to be something huge. So you've got to get that one guy, and you got something else. Um, and, he, and this next point is on Danny Amendola. And I know, you know, sometimes Danny, not sometimes, a lot of times, Danny Amendola gets caught in the in sort of the the traffic of, of everything going on Patriots. You know, it's usually the conversations about Brady and how do you play this week or Rob Gronkowski, do you have a monster week? Or these days, Deion Lewis, he's your AFC Offensive Player of the Week. Uh, you know, just up and down that roster, it's seen, you know, Brandon Cooks has a monster week one week or not. Uh, you know, the Burkhead stuff was big news until he gets banged up. Uh, you know, Chris Hogan's down. There's just so many other storylines and angles to this Patriots office, and I feel like Danny sometimes gets lost in the shuffle. Uh, but this was one of those weeks where, you know, remember back to the first time they played the Bills, it was really low targets for the wide receivers overall. And this was a game where it was nice to see in an early sequence where it was third and six, and they had crossers, and the progression was not for Tom immediately to Danny. You could see that he went a little bit deep into his read to find him. But third and six, shake at the top of the route, get beyond sticks depth, find Danny, gets down, doesn't even get hit. Slick, you know, the kind of plays that, ah, you're used to seeing. You used to see uh, Danny, M- or excuse me, but Julian do, do, Julian Edelman do stuff like that all the time as well. And Danny too. But it was just, I think it was a game where it's like, okay, that's in sort of a, you know, an important moment early in the game. And they found one another. It's good to see that relationship stay alive uh, because they tried a lot of other things today. They didn't, when they went to Dorset, uh, they went to Hollister, obviously. They they had some Cooks targets and Gronk and all these. Dwayne Allen had a bigger day. But Danny was not forgotten early. I think that's important. He's going to be a sticks, got to have it kind of guy in the playoffs. So, again, keep an eye on that. Wasn't a huge day for him. Not trying to sell that. Uh, wasn't a high target day. But it's just nice to know that when Tom gets in a spot, he can find him and Danny's usually open. Now, here's a big, big, big point. You want to you circle, star, asterisk, you know, draw – 
you know, throw sparkles. I don't know whatever I'm trying to say here. It's been a long week. Uh, <laughs> one guy on the uh, on the team, Shaq Mason, would be the guy I'd throw it in this game. Obviously, Gronk had his monster week against Pittsburgh. Has another just really good game uh, against the Bills has the exceptional highlight catch uh, but you know overall this wasn't Gronk day exclusively it was a lot of running game talk um, as well but the guy was just like really good through just about everything that was asked of him it was Shaq Mason this was one of those days where when you hear when you hear the broadcast team uh, Nance and Romo again this week Spending time on the guards, you know they're doing something serious. You know, if, if a guard is getting noticed, you know, he's either getting smoked or he's, he's really doing some exceptional stuff to get, to get the boost's attention. So, you know, Shaq Mason was really good uh, on his execution uh, across the board. So when I say across the board, I mean like as his pass pro stuff, his run blocking and combination stuff, his run blocking and solo, his run blocking uh, out in space. You know, he's one of the more athletic offensive linemen. He's good in the screen game. He's good in the, in the stretch plays, allow him to climb to the second level, and he has to chase after a smaller dude. He was just really good throughout the day. He won a lot, a lot of blocks. So, Big day for Shaq Mason. It's always a good sign when your offensive linemen are, are blocking dominantly like that. Now, I say this, and this is a, I, I think it's a good point to also insert maybe a name you're not looking for, a name that it, you, you might not, if someone doesn't bring it up, notice is doing a really fine job, and that's Cam Fleming. Cameron Fleming, in my notes, over and over and over again, I'm like, wow, oh, wow, okay, yeah, oh, yeah, okay, Cam, nice, 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 nice. You know, over and over and over again throughout the course of this game, he was winning his block. Now, Cam Fleming didn't have, you know, the best end in the league over him today. Jerry Hughes is usually to the opposite side, so he's getting sort of a cycle of big ends and then sort of the other guys, you know, but... Whatever. It doesn't matter. He was climbing to the second level making plays. He was winning against the bigs inside. He really combination blocked well with Shaq. There were moments where they would take, lift their guy at the tackle spot up to the second level to five yards and then turn him. Uh, you know, a good amount of those of those runs that broke uh, for Dion went behind these two guys. So Cam Fleming deserves a, a huge tip of the cap. Uh, the situation the Patriots have, and we mentioned this in past weeks, but this is, I think, worth highlighting again. Um, you know, you lose Marcus Cannon, one of the better right tackles out there, and then you have your other guy, Ladrian Waddle, who's presumed to be the backup, who's gotten himself nicked up as well. So Fleming, you know, is a third you know essentially at least that's the way the season started and he's playing like a first so that's huge uh and it's it's something that we've seen teams across the nfl not have uh such good luck with where they get to their second or third tight end and there's a massive drop off and it changes fundamentally how they run their place has not been the case with cam fleming so he'll have a decent test again this week against the jets uh but again i don't think you know he's not he's not facing pro bowlers in these these couple weeks so we'll see where the health goes if that means waddle comes back or maybe they just get comfortable say hey cam's logging games will keep him in there unless he gets nicked uh, who knows so that's uh that uh, he he deserves a, a a nice mention this particular week because of the work he's been doing um now one, this is probably one of the more impressive but then disappointing drives the patriots had in the game this was the the six minute drive um you know and we mentioned the third and six that keeps it going with amandola you mentioned this thing goes long obviously with six minutes a lot of different guys got touched, uh, got touches in this game. Uh, you know, this was there was a Hollister play in there as well. I think this is the one that ended in the the Hollister screen that didn't go so well. 
Um, but you know, I like it's good and it's not surprising in a week 16 game like this that that they would try some things. You know, there's the tunnel thing. There's tunnel motion to Dorsett, which uh, I, that was kind of the one purposeful moment of trying to get the ball in his hands. I like that. I think you could see how smooth he was. Uh, you know, once he had the ball in his hands, like, oh, that guy, he's just going to outrun people, and he looks really slick as a ball carrier. Um, when I say tunnel, I'm sorry, I should explain this a little bit more, but tunnel sweep, it's kind of like in college, I always hear about the jet sweep, but this new tunnel thing, um, I used, we used to call it tunnel screen with the tight ends where they'd start from one side and go in front of the quarterback and then turn and get the, get the screen. Uh, they're sort of doing that tunnel motion where he's coming up across as if they do that bat forward thing. Uh, the times we've seen it happen a few times, Brandon Cooks has got it with a bat forward handoff there. So it works like a forward pass in case they screw up the thing. They fake that, or at least they don't, you know, there's no response to it. And Brady drops back and then continues to hit him in the flat when he's extended. So that's the tunnel idea. And, they executed it really well. It was the one moment where Dorsett got his big touch. It was obviously it was obvious that that was something they were trying to feature there. To, again, make the make the preparation for the next week harder. A couple big Dwayne Allen plays in this game. The Hollister plays that maybe didn't go so well, but at least were in there. Uh, the Dorsett stuff, a handful of targets. One, one unfortunately, was obviously the pick uh, to Kenny Britt. But there's enough other stuff around the fringes there that it makes it still uh, for a tough week of practice because they're not just honing in on three or four guys total. It's sort of everyone who's active is going to get involved somehow, some way. So um, let's see. Let's go down here. There was the, the, the one – this thing ended sort of in a whimper, and we, we talked about how this is the long drive. Ends in a field goal. Uh, it was impressive, but then it stalls, right? It was the fourth down – or sorry, the, I think it was third – no, second, whatever it was. The, the screen that doesn't work to the tight end, and you kind of see the inexperience of the tight of a young guy or just a guy who's not as fast as your own running back. That's typical. That's why you don't usually do screens with tight ends. But both Gronk and Allen had gotten outside – and Dwayne Allen had gotten outside and had leverage on their particular blockers. And in the hole, though, is uh, Hollister out in space with a blocker in front of him, now, with a tackler out in front of him unblocked. So he's got one unblocked guy that would be in the hole in front of him, and then two guys outside of him that are both blocked by the big tight end. It would two, Other two big tight ends. It would be great to have seen him continue to take it outside and let those guys make their blocks, run that thing around the edge, but maybe just didn't have faith in his speed, just not used to seeing uh, you know, that kind of scenario in a live play, but he ran back into the hole. He just ran back to where the one on block guy was. So, um, you know, had no chance. So, uh, but it's an interesting idea. Again, it'll make people prepare for it, but it wasn't terribly impressive. So maybe they won't spend a ton of time on it. Who knows? Um, the next thing was the incompletion on third down that made it have to be a field goal. And that was high and behind Gronk and a lot of traffic. So again, people were, Starting to bang on Brady for the, the interception streak that he has here, and, and rightfully so, you know, not making some big sweeping point that he's having issues or anything, but he has had the one sloppy play a game, the one regrettable play, and usually he's so good at avoiding the one regrettable. Uh, it doesn't paint the entire game. His efficiency overall was still high today, or excuse me, on that day. Uh, his, But his once-a-game sort of regrettable one has been a thing for whatever it is, five, six weeks in a row. And as uh, Bob Soshi pointed out to me on our on our Patriots This Week show this week, it was back to 2002 since he's had that length of a streak. And he's like, well, that's back when I played oof, a million years ago. So, uh, you know, that was, that's that's something to keep an eye on. Uh, and I, I, re- I brought the, the interception that comes up later in this context because I thought the Gronk play was – 
similar. It was fortunate to not be something. Now, Tom throws it up and high and away, so it's not going to be picked. But he threw it into an off dangerous area. So Gronk's running you know, back towards the middle of the field. There was a lot of traffic. It looked like it might have been predetermined. Like Tom had sort of pre-snapped, decided that's where he was going to go with it. Didn't stare it down. He looked away. But he came back to it and then didn't see the coverage sort of getting ready to snatch onto that thing. So, you know, maybe he's intentionally throwing it high saying, you know, I just don't want to hang. But uh, one of the things that I think was a factor there that would lead you to believe that it was just a mistake is there was no pressure. You know, there wasn't like a – it wasn't like, okay, I understand why he threw it high there. He's just getting rid of the thing. He threw it high and wasn't being pressured yet. So I, I would think that maybe that would take him off the throw. But it appeared that maybe he just predetermined that that's what he wanted to roll with and didn't throw his best ball. Show any hoo ends up in a field goal and Buffalo ends up back on offense. Now, uh, people noted a lot on Twitter. It asked me to, to sort of look into this for the week and take a peek at what was going on with Malcolm Butler. Malcolm gave up some plays. Uh, I don't think this was a bad week for Malcolm. I don't think it was his best week, though, either. Uh, the play that's going to jump out the people the most, and I thought Roma did a pretty decent job of at least noticing the first half of how hard this route was that Malcolm gave up. It was to the Thompson guy. I think his number's 10. Um, but this play to Malcolm is, I saw it and had the same feeling. I think a lot of the people that were tweeting to me is like, oh, man, he gave one up again. And, oh, it's kind of an ugly breaking route. What was, what's, you know, wonder what's going on with him there. So what happened on that play was uh, they, so Malcolm is, is taking a, what looks like a deep over. He's in man-to-man coverage, and it's play action, little boot action. So it means the quarterback's reversing out. It's only a two-man route, so there aren't like a whole bunch of people out in the pattern. It's sort of off play action, and you know it's meant to look like a run game. And he's covering in man-to-man. Uh, the receiver gets up the field, 10 ish yards or whatever, and starts running over. Uh, so he's going to run across the formation. Usually what that happens when you're in coverage and a guy like that, the corners, you always see him undercut it. They're undercut it means try to get back underneath the route so that you're between the receiver and the quarterback to either dissuade the throw or if it's coming, you know, put your near arm out and bat it down. But this is what was so hard about this. And it wasn't as a sneaky good play design. As soon as Malcolm builds up, he's in really good coverage for the over. He starts to break underneath it. And the receiver stops in the middle field and wheels back the other direction towards the flag. So he's running over to the offense's right side, then turns and bolts back to the left. That's an unusual double move. Usually double moves don't go all the way, you know, try to make it halfway or more across the field and go all the way back to the other corner. That's a really tough cover. And I think one of the things that made it feel like, you know, oh my goodness, what's Malcolm doing? Well, he's undercutting it. It's a man route. You don't expect it to extend that far. And if it does, you kind of hope that the safety play will come and, you know, get involved. If he stays on top of the whole thing, then the man-to-man route is easy to fit in. You're undercutting it because you're kind of hoping, you're assuming that, that, you know, that, uh, that uh, the rush is going to get there. The ball is going to, can't possibly reel back, but it did. So tough cover, uh, tough play. You kind of just live to see another day. But he, you know, he, he pivots in the middle field and turns to run way up. And that, at right at the time that, that that Butler was undercutting it. So I thought the thing that made it go uh, was Taylor on that big boot moved the safety, moved uh, Devin McCourty out of the middle of the field. If Devin had maybe stayed home a little bit more over the top of that route when it wheeled and turned back to the 
to the the pylon on the outside, I think Devin was maybe a stride or two away from it where he could have been a little bit closer. So, you know, they got you. Some, they make plays too. They got really good players, and that was really good play design. And ooh, it was like, a, that was tough, Malcolm. Good luck, buddy. You know, so that was kind of more the feeling in there, less so than the one of the route he gave up later down the field where you're like, oh, okay, he just got beat there. Uh, I think this play was a little bit different. Um, and just, you know, again, tip of the cap to Buffalo. That was nice play design. There were moments in this game where they really had things rolling. They just, they just really failed to finish things off. Now, this is Marquise Flowers, uh, number 59, which I think kind of comes up here on fourth down, uh, where it's really important to mention this guy's work. And again, we talked a little bit about early and early off the front about how I thought he was being used and I, what the asset was that I thought they were bringing forward. It's the quick guy, right? The guy that can run, the guy that can get stuff done, uh, faster than a Landon, faster than Lee, faster than maybe, I don't know if he's faster than Van Noy. I think he is, you know, to hear the special teams guy talk about it. They talk about a dude that's able to run, but point is a little bit quicker a little bit lighter, faster linebacker that can cover ground. And it, and it came up on this fourth down play, uh, and they had it uh, down in the red zone. Uh, Bills are driving, but they go, they go ahead and decide to go for it on fourth down, and they got to Tyrod Taylor's right side. You've got uh, Marquise Flowers and Trey Flowers. you got the two Flowers guys together. Marquise on the inside, sort of a, a linebacker stepping up and kind of faking at the guard, kind of standing in that B-gap, which between the guard and tackle, what am I going to do? Am I involved in the rush or am I – Doing whatever else. Well, Trey is on the outside, and Trey does a more aggressive inside move, which allows replace force, it's called. So, like, you know, he can loop out around, and that's what Flowers, the other Flowers Marquise does. So this Marquise Flowers sort of becomes the contain player, and uh, secondary contain, they'll call it, and he chases down Tyrod Taylor. And I'm, I'm watching that play, and I'm thinking, okay, there's a number of other people who could have been in that role. And all the difference between making the play and not making the play is like one stride. You know, if you had Landon Roberts in that situation, man, he's tough as nails. He loves to stick his nose in there, hits guards all day. Uh, but, you know, he's not that he's not as fast. So maybe he's back a stride and then Tyrod gets that throw off. But what happened was Marquis Flowers, he's got those jets. He's got that little extra gear. And when it was time to turn it on and Tyrod tried to turn his on and give some space, didn't have it. So uh, Flowers did a really nice job out there closing the gap. And so at least from a pure sort of knowing your own personnel standpoint, who you're going to put out there for situations, they really knocked it out of the park of finding that role for, for, for Marquis Flowers. He did a great job with it, and it was really right week, right guy. Now, moving on, we're in the New England offense here. This is the interception uh, sequence. So the one thing I would say, this isn't to excuse Brady, Brady. It's just more to give a little context to what I think was going on. Uh, because, and this is coming, this is for me just trying to get a read off the, the post-game interview. And, and Brady, when asked about why he went back to Britt a couple plays later when they had a nice completion, uh, you know, he alluded to the amount of time they've had together, something along those lines, or sometimes when the guy's new, da da da, da something to that effect. And when the, that kind of stuff gets brought up, it makes me wonder, huh, was there something wrong in the route? Uh, you know, was he expecting them to continue on? Was he expecting them to sit more? What about it, right? Was there some issue between the two of them for the route? Do they have to go talk it over? Now, that could be part of it, I don't, but I don't think that that's the end of the story either. Uh, one thing that's going on here also, it's third and seven, and I think the safeties are seeing really hard on the sticks. So Poyer, the guy that ends up making the tackle, whether the route's perfect or not, and I, I thought it was, it was interesting to me, uh, and again, this is thinking like a defender here, you always like it when the route uh, – 
runs into coverage is the phrase that, that we were always told. That was that, uh, They would say you never want to run into coverage because, you know, you're trying to sit down in the hole. Uh, I, it appeared to me to be one of these option route things or the old uh, how are the Patriots do the route tree where, you know, the, the route can convert or the route changes a little bit or you have to know when to sit down based upon what the coverage is across. I mean, something to that effect. I don't know exactly what it is Kenny Britt was supposed to do, but it was interesting to me to see him running sort of an inside curl. He's kind of angling in at a 45-degree angle and going to curl it up uh, right at stick step. But there was a gap between the two defenders and – he passes the gap up and runs to coverage and then curls up. Now, maybe he's just memorizing, hey, I'm supposed to run a curl on this over there. I'm just going to do it. But it was a little weird to watch, you know, if you, if you, if you stop that route and kind of sit in the hole there, you're wide open. Or if you're Brady, you throw it back to the shoulder that's kind of away from coverage. Brady led it into coverage, and they were jumping it anyway at stick step. So not a great throw, a great read, but also the route was a little curious to me. And, you know, maybe they're saying, no, no, that's maybe it's exactly what he was supposed to run. He's just memorized, and he's going there, and you don't have the sort of the the leeway to, you know, to convert those things. I don't know at this point. I don't obviously have the play call. But I did look at that and say, well, that could have been ran better. Even if he had made that decision, you can beat the safety by keeping it to the back shoulder, and the route doesn't need to run all the way over to the coverage guys. I think that, you know, on, on a couple levels there, that could have been better. But uh, that's kind of uh, – that was obviously a kick in the nuts. That's, uh, you know, pick six or killers in games. It's a possession and points. Patriots are right back on offense. And I think um, this is – this was – Obviously, a very important series because you've kind of just you've you've hiccuped there badly, uh, but they come back to to Dwayne Allen early in the series and they get a positive outlet. I, not a huge play, but I think that's very important as you go forward. I throw him in that bucket with the Dorsets and you know the other guys here. Gillisley had some plays where some of the forgotten guys are are keeping their roles alive, even if it's just for a player or two. I think that's important down the stretch. Um, now they, after the outlet play to Allen, they come back to Kenny Britt. And this is sort of, as we mentioned before, the question that Tom was asked, like, okay, you just had the issue with, you know, whatever it is that went on and you threw the pick. Yeah. You know, what makes you want to come back to the guy? I want to get him involved. Well, I, the thing, the thing that I thought was really interesting here was not just that, Hey, they went back into another drop back play. And they're going to try Britt again, you know, like on maybe something comparable to what they had the interception on. Instead, no, they, they, they seem to have designed a play for him for the kind of route that he's best running, uh, best at running. And that's the dig stuff, in my view. Digs, crossers, overs, uh, press it down the field, deep comeback. That's the stuff we've seen him, at least in the highlight stuff from the other places where he had his most success. So uh, this was different than the play that the interception came on. The interception, he's one of extended three receivers. He's just running a little curler out. It's straight drop back for Tom. He's just got to make a choice. This this is Tom under center, stretch place. That's, you know, fullback and running back going one way. He's jumping out of there, faking it to the back, and then standing up. And then hopefully everyone's bit, and he's running uh, a dig route. D- uh, Britt is running a dig route. Dig is just a square in, you know, from the olden days. But he goes up 10, 15 yards where it was and then runs in. And because there's going to be a little bit of overreaction from the run fake, that's where it fits. So that was like, okay, yeah, it's Kenny Britt. That's that's what he's going to do. You know, hard sell play action. There's less read element to that because you kind of don't need to read coverage as much. You're kind of just you know because you're hoping that you're coming open a little bit and part off of the play action portion of it as opposed to drop back show the coverage he's got choices in the routes he's going to run something like that this was like i think this is more prescribed that that makes sense and if tom steps up out of the fake and brit's covered up he's got other places to go with the ball maybe just a check down but that was like okay i get it that's that's why that's you know done the way it was done 
So I think, again, there it's interesting, not just they went back to him, but how they went back to him. They went back to him with sort of more of a simplified look, and it really accentuates what he does best. Uh, within this same series, you had the big Mike Gillisley screen, and I think that's important, and it's probably teaching me as much as anything I'm trying to say to you guys because I certainly have that sort of preconceived notion that, your screen guys are, you know, James White, who was injured, and Rex Burkhead, and then occasionally Deion Lewis. But Gillisley, he's the come in, not catch passes guy. He's just the, the direct run, hit it hard, get downhill, maybe goal line stuff. We remember that from the real early season. We had all those touchdowns. But not screens, not Mike Gillisley. But yes, 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 Mike Gillisley really looked good running the screen, executed well offensively. He didn't get it, and it was a big play. So I think that kind of keeps you on your toes, especially well, think to think forward here to the Jets game. Whether there is no hey Gillisley's in straight run, hey Dion's in, and or no, it's it's really both guys. So who they kind of feel is the hot hand, and they can run. It appears at least most of their stuff from 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 either of the two guys being in the game. Um, this was also a portion of the game where we know we had some of the biggest sexiest catches with Gronk later on, the highlight stuff, but some of the chain movers came within this, and that's important. You know, everyone can't be a Gronk highlight. There's going to be times where you need him to catch a six-yard curl. You know, there's going to be times where you just need him to run a set route at or near the sticks and fall forward two or three yards, you know. There was some of that in here, and it's sort of the, the garbage plays that he has, but again, I think it – it keeps him honest, and and or at least early in this game, I didn't see like some over the top. Hey, we're doubling Gronk, take him out. There was enough zone coverage where Gronk was just sitting underneath the zones, and some of Tom's choices were just to go over the top of those and and choose more more aggressive throws. But in this moment, it was in this particular play I'm talking about. It was hey, it's more checkdowns, wrong word, but a shorter route. Take what you got with Gronk, and let's see if he can plow forward and get a few. Now, understanding this is also that same series where Gronk was missed over the middle. And it was weird because, you know, this this is on the same, you know, Gronk ends up with a touchdown later on this, but now you're in sort of that high red area and you miss Gronk over the middle. Uh, and it was it was in an odd way because he was, Gronk looks like he wants to be led with the ball. That looks like where all the vacancy is. But Tom didn't throw an inaccurate ball necessarily like he missed what he was aiming at. It looked like he was aiming back shoulder, which kind of takes it back to coverage, which is like, okay, these are the two guys that are most famous in this league for really being on the same page with each other, and one of the better relationships anyway. And there was a couple moments I was like, hmm, the high one in the red zone earlier and, and low goal line stuff, low red goal line that ended up being a, a field goal. And this was another one I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, ooh. It looked like if he let him, he's got a 30-yard catch. But they missed on that one as well. So I think we pretty much mentioned all the bad Brady throws. So you kind of you hear this and you get in a sense of like, oh, man, three of them, four of them, whatever. Well, yeah, but he was like 22 for 28. So I think he, he was pretty efficient on the, all the other ones. I think we basically he throws an incompletion and that ends up being news, So which is was clearly ridiculous. But overall, obviously a positive game for, for Tom. But um, there was sort of the, some curiosities there and a handful of the connections that just never happened between him and his all-world tight end. Now, on the touchdown, here it is. Holy hell, that is <laughs> that is catching it clean. So we're going to have all this conversation later about clean and obvious and all that stuff. I think the big difference here with the Gronk catch is the way he sort of pirouettes out, and that was interesting to me. Obviously, you know, all the conversations about contact and how he's going to play against contact and the suspension when he lost his cool. And in this situation, he 
basically went hands-free on a low, you know, on a, on a play right around the goal line where he's able to pivot, turn, doesn't push off the guy, doesn't grab, doesn't do anything like that, and then snatches it with those giant claws of his, reaches up and pulls the thing in. Um, just, you know, you've, you've seen it enough other places where you don't need me to go on and on about it. That was a, a stupid catch for a 270-pound guy. The athleticism, the turn, everything he's showing there, the ability to one-hand, it's great. And people can one-hand catches, but it's the way he one-handed the catch, the way he sort of was able to manipulate his body with a defensive back next to him who's, you know, a head shorter, whatever it is, uh, that you would think could manipulate his body at least at the same rate, but Gronk not. Gronk looked Gronk looked like a better athlete, which is crazy. You look at that and go, that's not supposed to happen when you're that size. What an amazing, amazing play. And for those people out there that, you know, I know the big other talk of the week was DeAndre Hopkins' catch against Steelers. Athletic catch, sure, tapped it to himself, made the play, got his feet in, all awesome. But he did it by committing, committing OPI, offensive pass interference throughout. He had a left hand full of cloth ripping down the, the shoulder of the defensive back, which helps him jump and keeps the other guy from jumping while he's jumping, then uses it to pull after he tipped it to Keep the keep the defensive back from turning around and make a plan. And I mean that was that was obvious. Uh, just bizarre to me that in contrast to Gronk's play, uh, that Hopkins play is being tweeted out by the NFL uh, account, NFL.com. Oh, is this the is this the catch of the year? Is this the catch of the blah blah blah? I mean, I've even seen I don't know who one of the websites that was tweeting about it that was trying to compare it to the uh, compare it to the Odell Beckham catch. I mean. Good grief! It's nowhere near that. It's an obvious foul. I mean, I just think if you're you're of this league and you're you're claiming your league of rules and all that stuff, I wouldn't want to promote the one where a guy clearly committed a foul. Your officials missed it, and he gets a cool catch and gets a cool you know play off of it. But I think that's one of the moments where I'm you become most aware that all this fury over some of the Patriots touchdowns or touchdown calls that went their way. Uh, when when you see people not be mad about that, it starts to make me think that you know what this is never about getting it right. This is about wanting cool things to stand, wanting cool plays to just, ah, just let them have it. It was cool. You know, no, no, <laughs> there's going to be a correct call or not. And, you know, and, and that particular one, they blew it and, you know, got the highlight they were looking for, I guess. But it certainly doesn't follow their rules. That was as obvious of, of an offensive pass interference as you can get. You don't, you don't get a situation where the, the offensive player has got a massive handful of, of cloth and he's using it to sort of manipulate the defensive back and go make the play. Cool catch, but that was an offense. So anyhow, moving on, uh, we'll we'll get here. Uh, you know, this is something that I want people to go back and look at um, on their own. Obviously, you're not going to be able to see it through through a, a, a podcast, but I'll, I'll highlight it myself. I'll maybe send a tweet out to about it later. Um, but I want you to know this Nicholas Grigsby play number fifty. He was signed away from Baltimore. Um, Grigsby's just been sort of a late addition to the team. He's doing great stuff out there for the Patriots. Excuse me, on special teams. And you know that I ranted a bit, a little bit last week on the special team stuff, and Matthew Slater should be a Hall of Famer and all that kind of stuff. It's another big topic, uh, too big for today's show. But the reason I bring up Grigsby is because I want you to think, if you're a listener to the show and this is you're hearing this name right now and you're wondering, what the hell is Chatham about to say? Why is he bringing up that guy? Did he even do anything in the game? I don't know. I didn't even notice. I'm telling you, without sort of hesitation or qualification of any kind, the best tackling play, I can't say the best defensive play because technically it's on special teams, but it's a, a play where you're covering something or someone and trying to tackle them. Bar none. you know. And if you want to have a top 10 list of these kind of plays, the top one of those, the top tackling play in this Patriots-Bills game, by a mile, 
is this Grigsby tackle. The kickoff that directly followed uh, the awesome Gronk catch, Grigsby absolutely trucks his blocker, runs him over, and jumps in and steps over him and keeps his stride going and then has a huge hit and solo tackle on the kick returner. It was awesome. I mean, it was it was uh, special teams porn. It was as good as you'll see. That, that was an awesome play, an exciting play. And the broadcast just... Ignores it, right? They they got other stuff to talk about. They want to do graphics and stuff between the transition between O and D. I hate that shit. And this Grigsby kid had what you really should be like a top 10 NFL play of the week. I mean, it really should. It was that good, and I'll show it to you. Uh, but it's annoying to me when, you know, I, I think it's important to point out plays like that. And if someone doesn't show them to you and you're just relying upon the broadcast to find out what's going on in special teams, you'll never know. So when you take a mass audience of millions and millions of people who consume and watch football just through broadcast lens – when the topic of should Matthew Slater be a special, you know, be a Hall of Famer? Of course, they're going to say no. Why would they? They never show them. They never show me what he does on, t- you know, on TV. Well, and they don't think that in their head, but I mean, I think the the, the ignorance of what's going on is important because they're not showing it, right? The the coolest, best stuff they do is often just as exciting and no different than a nice tackle on defense or a nice catch on offense. But we're not showing them. So I think Grigsby is a play is a great example of one of the most violent, exciting, cool hits in the game. And were you even shown it? Were you even reminded of it? Were you highlighted it? No, of course not. So uh, when you think about whether or not you think Matthew Slater should be in the blah, 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 were you shown his best plays? Do you even know what he did? Do the voters who want to make that decision even have any clue what went on? The people that are thinking about what happened in the Patriots game that are these voters for for Pro Bowl stuff and, and all pro and all those kinds of things, do they even see the Grigsby play? Are they even aware of it? I think I know the answer. I think you do too. Now, moving on, um, let's go here to uh, a little underthrow by Brady. And here it is. I, I've done literally Tom was 22 for 28. And I think I've just done every single non-positive throw he had because uh, this is the underthrow uh, to Cooks that ends up being a good and positive play for the team in the game. Underthrows Cooks uh, gets a big flag. And on that flag, uh, Ends up, you know, flipping the field, and they're going to come down and get points here directly after. Um, but I would say, oh, I'm sorry. This is, uh, yeah, that's it. Um, this is, you know, the ball travels 53-ish yards in the air. So it's not like, you know, don't, oh, Tom underthrew a go route. Is his arm strength hurting? Is what's wrong with him? No, he still threw it 53 yards, but he threw it late. And I think he just he's just a count late. And instead of being able to sort of lead Cooks out here, the the thing that was a little curious to me, even beyond just the fact that it didn't lead him, he had to come back for the ball. The defensive back did as well, and that's when the contact happens, and that's how you got the penalty. So it ends up working out. But uh, the the curiosity here to me was that Cooks had started to stack. In other words, got on top of the wide receiver or the defensive back. He's out in space. He's going to track speed this thing and get out there, and Tom's going to lay it up. It's going to be huge. Tom threw it back to the middle of the field, which sort of allowed the route to come back towards the defender really the defender was in trail to the inside and then being being run away from but the throw back to the middle kind of arced the route and the defensive back came back in then it's under thrown so they collide with one another but i thought it was a little curious that that it wasn't continued to lead him out and keep it outside the right hash or at least down the right hash so that was a little weird to me i don't know the answer i'm just sort of mentioning it if you saw it the same way and thought differently of that that I wonder why he threw it back to the middle because uh, it kind of helped the defensive back get back in the vault. Uh, you know, his answer to me might be, well, I got a penalty. So there you go. Maybe not. Uh, moving on. So um, there was really nice two-minute work uh, in uh, spy work by Marquise Flowers. He mentioned it on the fourth down play earlier in the game. Marquise Flowers is again in this role, but the bounce into either side. He did a really nice job of 
quick hug in the pocket when Tyrod started to break it, and some of them were incompletion, some of them were getting him down, period. Uh, but again, in this two-minute situation right before the half, that was really good work by Marquise Flowers. Again, I think they really found a nice role for him, especially think think forward, think playoffs. It doesn't, it's not relevant with Bryce Petty this week, but think playoffs. If it ends up being Alex Smith uh, with the Chiefs, if it ends up being mm, who on the AFC side of the draw, it ain't Big Ben, it ain't Blake Bortles, and Blake can run a little bit, but yeah, you're, you're more high-end athletic guy. It ain't Flacco. Uh, maybe Mariota again if they get in. Who knows? But it, yeah, I, maybe it's just Alex Smith. So at least on the AFC side of the draw, that's that's that would be the guy that you would probably match him with. You'd see a similar approach. If you ended up for some crazy reason with Seattle getting through that gauntlet they have on the NFC side, that's probably the other guy over there that you would that you would think of where you use the same sort of flowers role. But uh, a lot of stuff going on the NFC side. I, I highly doubt it ends up being the Seahawks this particular season. Uh, now I make this in sort of jest. Uh, we'll, we'll joke here a little bit about the notion that, that Charles Clay uh, had what to me looks like a lot like the James, uh, the Jesse James uh, non-touchdown a week ago against the Steelers two weeks ago now. Um, but what's, what's curious to me is how that play just got so buried because of so much controversy about the Benjamin thing. Charles Clay had a play that pissed everyone off the week before with Jesse James. He catches it. He's in open, and I, I believe that's a catch. I know it does not follow the rules, and you got to stick with the rules. So the rule says that you don't survive the ground, you don't get the catch, and that's correct. They should do it. They did it. They did it the right way with James. They obviously did it the right way. Hit this one without any controversy. But what I found kind of odd with that is that no one seemed to care. Like a week ago, it was the worst thing in the world. And, and the Patriots are playing the Bills. It's a, you know, I don't know if it's nationally televised, but at least regionally here with the Patriots on CBS. And, and nobody seemed to be up in arms on that, uh, which is weird to me. Because maybe it's just because it popped out more clearly. You know, when he went to the ground, he fumbled right away from his body. But, you know, James wasn't immediately available or immediately obvious, but when you put it on the replay and you realize, oh, his hands aren't even underneath it and it's out of both and it's resting against his forearm and ground, it's, it's on the ground. So, I don't know, just to me it was sort of the, the, the hypocrisy of it all. Like, it would be, I'd feel so much differently about all these so-called controversial plays if people were consistently angry about them. But when that one kind of just came and went and no one seemed to care, it wasn't like, you know, if your position before would have been, James should have been gotten, given the touchdown one way or the other, don't care what the rule is. Well, then I think you should have felt the exact same way about the Charles Clay one. If you don't and don't care... Huh. Like and again, especially if you're a, an outside observer, you're a you're a Chiefs fan or you're a Chargers fan or you're a Cowboys fan or something. You're just watching the early game. That one should cause the same fer, uh, fervor, I guess, uh, as the as the James one. It shouldn't be any different. If you the principle's the same, you should be mad equally or not mad equally, whichever it happens to be. But people weren't, so their 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 attention focused on this next Benjamin catch that was. Ruled a non-catch, incorrectly so. So let's get into that, and I'll try to be quick with it because we're getting close here to the one-hour mark, and I want to make sure I spend at least 10 to 15 on the Jets at the end. So I'll try to make this about a three-minute point. I think one of the big issues here with the Benjamin overturn, and again, my position here is that they had to find something clear and obvious. It is clear to me on the replay, although it's complicated. So does complicated mean obvious? I don't know. We don't get a definition for it. It's just whatever your definition of obvious is. It is absolutely clear to me that he didn't, qualify for a catch in the NFL and and also have two feet to go with it after. That's the biggest issue. So um, one thing I think that I started to get into this is the, the what people need to understand that are having sort of this, you know, fall outrage now uh, because they want 
replay to be changed because probably in in if under truth serum because it's it's benefited the patriots too many times people don't like that and i half wonder if portion of this is also you know fantasy football i mean is that an angle to it for some people uh they see a cool catch they want those points to stand certainly isn't exclusive i don't think that's across the board but i think there's a percentage of the population that thinks that way that doesn't want the the you know, the rules to be enforced because they just want to see highlights. They just want to see catches. Uh, they don't want them to apply it strictly or under a microscope because I don't want catches taken away. I want those points. But so to the greater point here, just understanding what's going on and why I get kind of fired up about these kind of plays is I, I just don't like this concept. I think I think the logic here stands better than any argument against it that why in the world would you put more weight or credence to what was originally ruled on the field if you know what the guy's being asked to rule upon isn't humanly possible? You're like, what? What, Chatham? What the hell are you talking about? This is it, folks. Uh, What an official is being asked to rule upon in that moment, and you've seen it, the Kelvin Benjamin thing happens in sort of a blink of an eye, all of that within less than a second, start to finish. and you have to make a quick decision. Here's the problem. Humans, one set of eyes. This isn't sort of cumulative work. This isn't like two officials putting their heads together, one that's in charge of the feet, one's in charge of the hands. It's not that. One dude is there and is meant to simultaneously, somehow, some way. you explain this to me because I'm pretty certain I get how eyeballs work, at least my own. How does one stare at hands to find that moment at when, you know, for when his uh, when possession was made? And we know the bar for possession is higher than high right now and we can argue all day about that whether or not it should be but it is high we know it's high you got to do a lot of things to sort of illustrate that you've caught something in this day and age so how is it that an official with one set of functioning eyes that aren't able you know to use one eyeball and look at one thing and one the other that's just not how it works you look at one or the other how can you be staring at possession up at the hands up by the chest and also be simultaneously looking at feet on a six six body you can't do it. The point is you guess. You have to guess. It's the only way eyes work. You guess. Did he have them? You don't know. You think he did? I don't know. Here's the moments where where this is just what's happening. In the event that a guy catches the ball clean, well, yeah, then you can quick glance. Catch it clean, and then the two steps follow. And then you can, that it's it's plausible and that, that, a, that a human can do it that way, and they do it all the time. But when he bobbles it, and he actually started to drag his feet prior to possession. So it was being bobbled, not yet secured, and the dragging was going on. Where's the, where are the eyes at? Which of the two things is the official actually looking at? He can't tell you. He doesn't know. He does the best to take a snapshot with his brain and his eyeballs, and he guesses. So why does a guess carry all this weight once you go into replay and you get better information? Why so hesitant to overturn what we know is a guess? We're not saying, and again, this to me is way different than evaluating one thing, like whether or not someone crossed the goal line. There aren't two things to look at there. Well, I guess knee and ball, but there's not, you know, feet and hands that are six feet apart from one another. It's, you know, was a guy down or not? You know, and at least an official can stare at one thing if he's making that determination. Was the ball released with a forward pass? If you're standing in the pocket and you're watching that, you don't have to stare at toes and the hand up at the eyeballs you can stare at the hand and make a judgment based upon the forward motion i get stuff like that absolutely i don't get 
in this particular situation, and there's lots of situations like this, where one man with one set of eyes can be said to have looked at two things simultaneously that we know he didn't, and in review, we give that most weight. Makes no sense to me. Just really does not make sense to me. Here's why. Because when you go into replay, the first one you're shown, first one I saw, started to make a tweet about it. Oh, Benjamin caught that. Looks like his feet are dragging. Well, you know what? You couldn't see the ball. Didn't realize it was moving. Didn't realize he hadn't yet pinned it against his chest. So when his left, when his foot's behind him, kicking up those beads, didn't realize he hadn't yet secured the catch. You don't see that until one of the other replays. Not even the second, but the third. When they flip it around and you show it from the other side, you realize you do know from a timestamp. You can pause it and say, okay, in that particular body position, at that particular time, he, the bead stopped kicking up. I know his foot is now raised. It's it's raised. It started to hover, and but I don't know if he's possessing yet. We'll have to look at the other one to see that. Well, that's when this, I think, we lost a lot of people. A lot of people that were convinced at that moment, I saw the feet drag. He must have probably had possession on the other side of that body I can't see. Give it to him. That was the original call. Give it to him. I know that's the train of thought with a lot of people out there. But I like the idea of the officials trying to get it right. They've got all these camera angles. They've got the better information. They don't have to guess. They can use the second frame to say, oh, well, we now know from before when the beads start kicking up and what body position he was in from there. And now we can pause it and say, oh, there's where possession happened. And, oh, the foot was hovering by that time. So we know that from the other frame. So this is probably where I guess it becomes most debatable for people if this little notion of clear and obvious is is should is or should be interpreted this way. And for me, it I think it should be. And what I'm saying is that it's okay to use two separate shots to confirm one single idea. Some people might say, well, that doesn't qualify on the obvious thing. It needs to be one shot that shows it all or not. I'm saying there's nothing in the rule that tells you you can't do it that way. And I would like to see them get this conclusion more than a few minutes, you know, the two-minute time thing. This one seemed to go a little long. But I like that they got it right. I mean, if you're on your, if you have to put up a year's salary on whether or not he did catch this or not with the two feet down after possession, go ahead and bet your money. This has nothing to do with fandom. It doesn't care who you cheer for. If you're going to cheer for that, if you're going to have to put that kind of thing up, I know which one you're going with. I think most people rested upon the information wasn't good enough. It was good enough. It was clear, but it wasn't clear in one shot. So if you're just simply have to stand before God and gamble on the one that the one that actually truthfully did happen, it is the one where the foot hovered after possession. Possession happened later. I think most of us seeing it live until you'd seen that third replay didn't realize that he hadn't possessed it until awfully late and the foot had already come up. Uh, so I think one of the other things that's really important in mentioning on the way out of this, and again, you obviously understand what my opinion is on this, and, and my opinion here is offensive player, defensive player, not Patriots bills. I don't give a shit about that. And it's annoying to me, obviously, when, oh, I know you're judging that way because it went in the Patriots' favor. No, I really, really, really do care more about my my uh, my analysis than I do who gets it. That That's that's me, and if you don't know that about me, then you haven't fucking paid attention. So anyway, <laughs> so moving forward here, though, I think it's really important to understand that possession is the thing that drives all the things that come after it. Possession, 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 and we know the bar's high. So I think one of the things that a lot of people did that helped lead to this error in judgment about if it was clear or not is they paused it. They did the still frame thing at that moment when the football touched the fabric of the jersey. 
Now, it's important here to distinguish between Gronk snatching it up in the air and the one that he did with his big old paw. It's caught. It's in the hand. It's moved and grabbed and pulled back to the body. This one was tapped and pulled in. In other words, not yet caught. It needed to be against his body before it would have been caught. And that's what's different. Possession is not freeze frame when the hand is pushing the ball towards the chest. So it, there's no possession just simply because he's touching the outside of the ball and, and the other ball is touching his body. He hasn't yet possessed it yet. That's just the first instantaneous kind of situation where where fabric and you know fabric is now touched the leather. That's not possession. Possession is then squeezing it against his body and proving that he actually has the damn thing because he hadn't caught it up in the air away from his body. I think that's where people made the most most errors here. There was no possession until he had squeezed it against his body, which happened frames later than the ones where people were trying to say his toe was still on the ground. It wasn't. The bead stopped kicking at that moment where it had been squeezed against his body. That's when possession happened, and the toe was clearly up by then. I know this is confusing, and if your point of view... Uh, even if you are a Patriots fan, it doesn't have anything to do with Patriots fan stuff. Literally, we wouldn't have had cause to do this play on a Patriots show if this had happened against the Colts and Packers or something, or the Chiefs and Raiders, whatever. But you could change the jerseys, and my analysis isn't on this isn't changing. That's what happened. That's how it best fits with the rule that they have. I don't mind that they took a long time to get it right. They did. Uh, this is not about can you fit a card underneath the guy's foot. You know it hovered because you could see it hovering from the other angle. You know when it hovered, which also can marry up the when it was possessed or not. So you'd use all the information to do the best decision you possibly can. In this situation, New York did, which is crazy. And for that, good. Moving on. All right, so here we go as we kind of head out of this thing. We've we've pretty much just uh, pretty much just well, we just knocked out the first half, and we don't want to spend. Uh, we did a whole hour on on one half of football, so we don't want to keep you here all day with the show. So we'll kind of just hit on the high points. Um, there was the, Mel- the McCoy check down in the second half, which was one of the biggest, ugliest plays. Made a lot of guys miss. If you watch a lot of Bills games, and I've caught my fair share this year because they're in the division, they're on TV occasionally opposite the Patriots. So I think I've seen them, you know, four or five games, something like that, start to finish beyond just what I have to watch to review when they're playing one another. And you know there's always a McCoy breaking play. I think the thing the Patriots at least survived here, it's not thrived, but survived, was their big breaker didn't end up in points. Their big breaker, where he makes a bunch of people miss and makes a lot of people look silly, it happens to everybody in the NFL against LaShawn McCoy. But on theirs, they got the stop, and then actually that drive ended up uh, with a, with a red zone stop, which is really good and big. And they ended up in a field goal. I think that's what made it 16-13. So you didn't get killed on the one big McCoy play. It wasn't good. You don't go home and you know brag to your parents or whatever that of your tackling on that play, but you survived it, and then you nutted up and made a play after. That's very, very important. So uh, Shaq Mason on the Gillisley touchdown. Obviously, Gillisley finally punches in. It's good to see him get back and get involved. Ran hard, did well in the screen game, did run in the running game, and the chances he got. Shaq Mason on that particular run, go back and watch that if you want to sort of spotlight someone. Mason underneath his guy, stands him up, walks him back. So impressive. It, it just just shows you it's not just the athletic out in space guys not just great at double team and in climbing he you know shorter guard he's only six one or two or whatever he is underneath a guy and not just under to prevent himself from getting knocked back under and then driving the other dude he solo blocked a guy off the goal line and created the hole for mike gillisey very very impressive now big flat route from Dwayne allen down the stretch that was pretty impressive that got things going as the scoring picks up here now in the third quarter for the patriots and oddly enough we'll, we'll kind of finish out with this one 
It was third and 11, and it actually had come off of a Brady sack. Brady had been sacked by Jerry Hughes. Um, it was kind of one of those iffy sacks where you even call it a sack because it's happening essentially right at the line of scrimmage. He has to step up in the pocket. He's falling basically right back on the original line. They went in and called it a sack, called it third and 11 for official purposes. But it's pretty much just an extended play, extended play. He's stepping up in the pocket, and you kind of fall forward. Uh, but, yes, technically sack. And uh, the next play is third and 11. Obviously a terrible down and distance, and they score a touchdown on the screen, deep in the red zone. I thought that was interesting. You don't always see that. Uh, you know, they obviously had a couple other red zone fails down there, so they went a little different way. And Dion's running there was very, very good, his ability to sort of squirt through there. And, again, the blocking was great out in front of them. So real positive stuff there. And after this play, obviously, down the stretch, they ran the ball out, uh, got points again off that, but was pretty efficient running the ball down the stretch. You want to see that because then it becomes about clock killing and uh, being efficient. And you end up with a big day. Obviously, Dion has his huge individual day, but cumulatively, the, the yards on the ground were up near 200 yards again. You love that at this time of year. Really great stuff there. So, we're going to have to move here quickly into the uh, the James Harrison news. Obviously, that's the big news of the week, other than this Benjamin stuff. So we'll we'll kind of let that wine go. But the thing with the with the uh, with the Harrison thing that was really interesting to me is, you know, I I, I in my time getting to play in the NFL, I, I you got I was around a lot of really really good football players, obviously in New England and even in New York as well. But one of the things that happens with older players. You know, guys that could really, really play before and can still play later, but they're not quite what you remember them as. Usually the attribute that goes is the quickness and the explosiveness, right? That's just age and speed, right? And with cornerbacks, yeah, they're not going to get out and go run at 4-3. They might be 4-5 guys now, but they can still do the job. They just do it a little different way. I think Revis is a good example of that. Um, but I think when you start talking pass rushers, if you were a speed, get the corner guy over and over again, that if you lose that attribute, then you got to become a counter or power guy. And some guys struggle with that. You know, once that quick burst goes, what else is left? So I think with James Harrison, the thing that's really interesting to me is because his game was never, he was always a quick dude, but quick and strong. More quick, more strong than quick, but did have some quickness and plays with great leverage because he's not a tall guy. Gets underneath stuff, bulls people, strong, tough, all those kind of things. Um, but one of the first things that popped in my head when I said, okay, older player with that profile, not being used whatsoever by Pittsburgh at this point as really a situational rusher, that tells you something. And that, to me, doesn't say, hey, Patriots just got their new situational rusher. That, to me, says, oh, strong like bull, uh, you know, can set an edge. This, to me, has much more to do with a regular defensive role, which, to me, is where the bigger vacancy was anyhow with the edge guys. You know, most of these guys that have been showing up, guys like Eric Lee, he's more, most of his better plays have been as a true defensive end, the sub stuff, not really the base stuff. And base, that's one of the more some of the fits have been issues in recent weeks. I mean, a young player, you expect it. Everyone, everyone struggles with that stuff a little bit early on because it's a little more complex run schemes coming at you people cracking you from the wide receiver level. It's just different. It's complex. So sometimes I think that's where really plugging in the veteran player that's still strong as he ever was, but maybe just not quite as quick. Maybe just doesn't have the, the, the speed and counter and corner turning ability that one time did, which, you know, we don't know enough about James. 
uh, because we haven't seen him. All we know is he was active 5 of 15, and in his highest rep game, I think he's had 40 total reps in the season, something like that, and had his highest rep game against the Chiefs. And so there's people out there speculating this was move was to in case you go against the, the Chiefs and he gets to go against Eric Fisher in the playoffs or something like that. I mean, who knows? I think it's probably much more tangible on the ground than that, less about winning some one sack in a playoff or something, and more about Guy is still strong as hell. They don't need him to be the situational rusher because they've got those. We, I think they just showed that uh, with Dietrich Wise on one end and Flower on the other, that's your two inch. You're you're good to go. And Marquise Flowers has now shown that he can be another adding guy. Van Noy maybe at some point if he's healthy too. I think the greater and, – and Lee as this other maybe third or fourth or fifth in that group that can obviously play edge reps, I think you're actually okay on edge pass rushers. Not better than okay. They're in a really solid position. The thinness comes from the edge players in regular defense, the edge setting, right? And I think that's where you can come in. You don't have to turn the corner. You don't have to go get a sack. You have to you just bull a tackle, you know, on setting an edge if they're, and they're fanning out to you. Or you, you set the tight end two yards to the backfield and just push him into the back. That, to me, might be the area where we see James Harrison do the best stuff. Now, one point I need to make on this before we move on from it. Pittsburgh has always done something much, much differently than New England does, even in their own 3-4s. So in the positions that you always saw Mike Vrabel do, that you saw Willie McGinnis do, that you saw Nick do for years and years and years, and for me, for the, the handful of times you saw me do it, uh, was we were really true D-gap, or what's edge-setting contain guys. And most most coverages, most things we did. In other words, no one was supposed to get outside of us. We had to be wide as the widest, right? We had to set the edge and make sure everything turned inside of us. Pittsburgh, in their 3-4, and him playing one of those hangover spots like you're most often used to seeing like Nink or, or Sheard in, in recent years do, Pittsburgh plays it really aggressive with their edge guys. In other words, they let the ball bounce outside of them. They don't mind letting it bubble, which means that their secondary players, second-level players or linebackers flow off and make those plays, or they use safety force a lot where the the outside linebackers can be more aggressive. The reason I bring that up is it'll be interesting to see if balls bounce on Harrison because he's used to a little different style where he's allowed to be more aggressive. In New England, you really don't want to be overly aggressive because you're a true contained player generally for, as the force player. So his, their, Steelers' idea of force is often looks a little different than the Patriots' version. The Steelers will let their edge people be more aggressive, bub, bubble it, and allow sort of the backs to hopefully take a back step or a more sharp cut as secondary contain comes in from the secondary or from second level inside linebackers flowing off of, of say James Harrison, you know, being more aggressive against the tackle or against a fullback coming out of him, something like that or tight end. So just keep an eye on that. So there'll be a little bit of transition for him there. I mean, I mean, he's obviously played as many years in the league as he has. He's going to be smart. If they say, Hey, overplay force, you got force. Nothing gets outside of you. Bull may, you know, create a pile, keep it inside of you. I think he'll be exceptional at that. But in the event that you see some hiccups, Part of it might just be the transition to not being used to being an overplay on the edge. So keep that in mind. All right, now let's transition out of this. That was sort of your your Bills wrap, your big news of the week, which is obviously the James Harrison story. I think he can obviously help you more in regular than the, the pass rush stuff. Um, but I also think that uh, we got to touch on how James might fit in against the Jets and what problems the Jets do present and what you have to sort of keep an eye out for. We'll do this in 10 minutes or less um, and kind of look at where the team is and what I think can come out of this game. Now, I'll just you know bust any early bubbles here on, on, on you know, this isn't meant to be some sort of reveal at the end on a, on a guess on the game. I think the Patriots should, if they take care of business, really kick the Jets' ass. And it's not because it's, 
the Patriots and the Jets. I think that the Jets provided so much more of a challenge when McCown was still the quarterback. I think things have really fallen off since then. And it's really easy to go back and watch a few weeks, last few weeks. The offense just doesn't operate like it used to. And that grittiness and toughness and situational wins and, and then, you know, coupled with the defense that's been playing pretty solid ball, that's when they're dangerous. When the offense really struggles to move it, um, you know, it's just hard to even force yourself to come up with some idea or way where the Patriots might lose. It's really hard to see. Bryce Petty has just he struggled, and and maybe this is this is bias of my own here from from a year ago. I just I remember that first series he came out at the end of that blowout last year, and he got sacked twice and then threw a pick. It was like whoa, three reps. Woof, woof, woof. Ah, ah. And I know he's a year older. I know he's done some more stuff. I know he's played, and I, I watched a little bit these last couple of weeks, but. I just think that there's so much more limited uh, guys like Robbie Anderson that have been uh, big play guys. The big play element's kind of been gone. Uh, you know, it, it's not been there in this to the same degree it was with McCown. Even from the broken play standpoint, even from the the go route stuff, where Robbie Anderson has really been a guy all over the formation. You can find him in the slot. You can find him in the two or three spot. You can find him on one extended as an X. That means you can't motion. He's on the ball, or as a Z, where he's off the ball and moving. Like they've really used him all over the place because he's your big hitter. Almost a thousand yard season. Top of my head, I think he's like in the nine thirties. 940, somewhere in that range. So, with a pretty solid game, this is a thousand yard wide receiver. He's got seven touchdowns on the on the year, I believe. His, his yards per catch is up around 15. I'm just regurgitating stats. I think I heard earlier in the week for for another show, but. Um, the point is, he's been really one of the finds out there, and I think if you're the Patriots trying to sort of concentrate your coverage, how you're going to handle this team, the things you absolutely have to take away, it's the big play stuff with Robbie Anderson. And Robbie's that guy. And it's the run game with Bilal Powell, maybe Forte if he's involved heavily in that, maybe uh, Elijah or McGuire, is it McGuire? Yeah. Uh, is the other guy, the young kid, who we actually highlighted quite a bit going into the last game against him and didn't end up having a huge role. So they've got strong backs a pretty strong core there of pretty solid backs run hard very competitive can do some things you take away the running game and take away their one big shot guy which is Robbie Anderson number 11 second year player out of Temple uh thin dude 6'3 190 ish uh so you, you kind of you you really you really neuter him I mean because there's not much left there there's a talented tight end in Austin Safarian Jenkins uh, we're not going to replay that whole drama from the first time. Uh, you know, there's other solid wide receivers. You know, Curse can make plays from Seattle, but he's not someone who's fed a lot, especially now as as uh, as Petty has taken over the reins there. So it is. It, it's hard to try to you know keep a straight face and drum up to you people that that watch this show or listen to the show religiously that I really think there's a threat there I kind of don't and I'm I'm trying to be respectful of the Jets cuz I know they've really battled this year I think uh, in this regard it's sort of a tip of the cap situation because they felt like a team that was building themselves to have a Browns type year but they really didn't they really fought through and won some games I think a lot of people didn't think they would and they put a much better fight against the Patriots the first time then I believe they would. So, yeah, maybe maybe I'm overlooking them here a little bit again, and they'll keep this closer than I think. Uh, but I think it's really just a matter of playing smart football, winning the turnover differential, uh, you know, significantly so, uh, and preventing big shot plays to Robbie Anderson and keeping the, the run game in check. We don't know where, as I'm sort of recording the show, where the Patriots are going to be injury-wise as far as like Allen Branch and Van Noy. Those are the two big names that were kind of are they or are they not going to be involved and I think a lot of the 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 fortune swing upon those two things I think down the stretch getting 
Branch healthy on that knee will be a big a big plus. And getting Van Noy just because he's sort of a, a Swiss Army knife, a guy that can do a lot of different things in a lot of different roles, especially if he's now added in here and there with Harrison feeling a little more comfortable with Lee more into a, a rush only kind of role, uh, or even just being more comfortable in the regular portion rotating with Harrison, whatever it may be. And David Harris down the stretch, getting some work, you know, just dependent upon who the, who the, uh, the opponent is. But I think there's enough sort of, there's enough clay here to mold something that can win, uh, when it matters most. And I think that's really the most important thing. You really, after watching these last couple of weeks, the progression is there on tape. The Improvement is there in the front seven portion. Uh, the step back stuff, though, that happened against the Bills that you're going to want to see improve against the Jets, that it's kind of hard to see how there would be a straight line connection, is Stephon Gilmore. I would say it was the first time in a while we've seen him giving up multiple on-ball, taller wide receiver, just goes and gets it, and he can't do anything about it kind of plays. Um, we saw him do really well against Mike Evans early in the year, who's, you know, I think actually a lot better player than Kelvin Benjamin overall. Uh, but you know, he did struggle with that body type there and that hadn't been the case in a while. So it's something to keep an eye on. Uh, the jets don't really have that guy. Curse is kind of bigger, but not that big. Uh, Robbie Anderson is kind of tall at six, three, but he's not, he's a really thin guy. He's not big and you know, Benjamin's almost a tight end. Uh, so they don't really have the people, unless for some reason Gilmore ended up on Austin's ferry and Jenkins is a big guy, to, to stress them that way. So I don't think those issues will resurface. The double move stuff, people are going to come at Malcolm Butler that way. But I think part of alleviating that is saying, hey, man, if a guy's going to get a route that extends that long, that goes all the way across the field and comes back the other, safeties will have to get involved a little better on that. And Malcolm's just going to have to fight to live another day. He's got one of the toughest jobs out there. Uh, when the Thompson kid in that Bills game uh, ran the go route on Malcolm, though, the, the one down the, the sideline that helped set up that – the, the drama with the clay non-catch and then the the Benjamin thing. Um, that was him just not sinking well enough with it. He got beat bad there, and that was a big play that set up a lot of this other drama that happened. So, you know, it needs to be better. It wasn't, um, it wasn't Malcolm's best week, but I think the one thing you can point to is that once you cross the 30, when you get down to the tighter spaces, and it's not just about pure speed, it's more about competitiveness and ball skills. That's what Malcolm has shown. And I think he really did again. Uh, I, I shouldn't say it. I didn't think he really did. I, I think he really will this week. I think the matchups for him are much better. I think that competitiveness will come out. I think that propensity he has for, for sort of finding a turnover will come out a little bit more. Uh, but again, this isn't a great receiving unit, but they're plucky. And I think you can go down the list of, of games this year where you can find defensive backs who on paper look better than the Jets people. And you find Robbie Anderson making plays. You find uh, Curse making plays. You find um, the, the backs out making plays and the passing game for those guys. So the Jets, they deserve Respect, especially for what it appeared their their front office is trying to do with the team, kind of stripping the stripping the body of the vehicle, and they're still expecting it to go make ra- and win races. And that's you know I think they've done a lot with with uh, uh, that exceeds expectations. Let's put it that way. So got to give them respect. It'll be an interesting game. It's going to be New Year's game. It'll be early in the afternoon. Patriots need to go out and do some of the things I talked about. Limit the big plays and uh, keep the the running game contained and it'll be a fun week to see how James Harrison plays uh, after sort of that goal uh, keeping things inside of them banging heads really making the room small I think this is going to be fun to watch them grow and maybe learn a little bit about who they may be when they 
come back after that bye in the playoffs. So this was a fun show to do. I enjoyed it. We covered a lot of stuff, maybe a little too much weighted. So that's me screwing up the bill stuff relative to jet stuff here at the end. Um, one thing to keep your eye on here, though, as we head out of this thing is the new stuff. And I always I think, you know, for every year that we do a podcast of some sort here, uh, it's not the last year's football by football uh, show didn't didn't do exclusively Patriots stuff. We would touch on them, but it wasn't all of them. Week 17 is weird, and I remember this as a player uh, because I got more uh, defensive role usually because on like a normal week I would play during the season. Maybe I'm getting 10 plays. Maybe I'm getting 15. It kind of usually would hover around in that, that area during the, the normal parts of the season. But when you get to this week 17, and they do try to rotate guys a little more, keep guys fresh, keep guys healthy. It's not sitting guys. But the guys that were in my role, they see an uptick. Maybe I see 20 instead of 10, you know, maybe it's something like that, and still do your special teams plays. So I think that'll be mildly interesting to see who along that roster sort of fits that bill. Marquise Flowers, he had a big role last week anyway, so I think maybe we continue to see that stay high. But do they work in more Harrison? Do they work in more uh, uh, David Harris? Do they work in more... Hollister plays more in a traditional sense, just targeting him to put it on tape to see how people react. Does Gillisley have a big week? I, I predicted that on, on the Patriots this week show. I don't know how serious I am about that, but I, I think it's interesting to watch and see if, okay, let's, let's, let's bell cow him a little bit. This is going to be a week where we want to win on the ground anyhow, shorten this thing and get out of here and get into the playoffs. Can it be a big week for Gillisley? Ran really hard, ran really well against the Bills. Uh, it will be interesting to see if they expand his role there this particular week. Can you find a third, a fourth, a fifth target to Philip Dorsett? Can you find some ways to get the ball in that guy's hands? He can do some things where he's proven as much. Do you really go out of your way to try to game plan and schedule plays for Kenny Britt? You know, and that, that again, it's another week. It's It will now have been the third week. Uh, I'm sure he's got, you know, maybe an extra volume now of what he understands or what he's comfortable with. So this, I think, is really what this week is about. It's first and foremost about winning, but secondly about learning what it is you got in your holster, learning all the weapons and what they may be able to do for you. Maybe not even in the first preseason game, or excuse me, postseason game. Maybe it doesn't come back up to the next one, you know, because the matchup is entirely different. But uh, that's why seventeen a week 17 game can kind of be interesting. So enjoy watching this thing. Enjoy sort of learning a little bit about what your Patriots have uh, left and, you know, what, the, what sort of the last at bat looks like before they head into the big, 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 big real stuff that you look most for to if you're a fan of this team well that was your real thing patriots podcast i'm matt chatham your host uh, thank you so much for continuing to tune into this thing enjoy this patriots game this week final one of the year with the jets and have a happy new year as always safe as always keep sharing the show keep sending on out there you can subscribe on itunes you can subscribe on blogtalkradio.com or you can just wait for my little tweets out there on the interwebs Hey, folks, thanks for tuning in. Enjoy your week. Speak at you next week. Bye-bye now. Thanks for listening to the Football by Football podcast. Football insight by football players. Hi, Lucky. Hi, Dusty. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned.